Back in January, our church uh, started off the year with an emphasis on worship. Last year, we uh, emphasized the idea from our mission statement or our vision statement of the word mission. And this year, we decided we're going to focus on the word worship. And so we started the year off with what we called the Worship Initiative. We put together a booklet in families and groups. And here on Sunday mornings, we went through an eight-week series on what does it mean to worship. And when we did that, we defined worship for ourselves. We were all working on the same definition as our reverent and grateful response to the Lord that seeks to honor Him for His great attributes and good gifts. So fundamentally, that's hard to remember, but it's a reverent and grateful response to who God is and what He's given us. The key there is it's a response. And so in our vision as a church, we want to be a community of grace. We want to be receiving God's grace. That's step one. That's why in our vision statement, we always say that we're receiving grace. There's this downward arrow. Everything in our life is God's grace. I didn't deserve any of it. Fundamentally, my salvation and beyond that, the sun that's shining, the rain that's falling. So if we can posture ourselves first as seeing that everything in our lives as a gift of his grace, then we will naturally respond with worship, which doesn't mean singing all day every day. It means we have this attitude of gratitude throughout our days as we consider how good God has been to us. The next step in our vision as a church is then we are a community, we connect in community, and then we go out on mission. But for the sake of uh, this next sermon series we're about to kick off, we're calling it Worship on the Way, and we're going to focus again on worship for this summertime. There's a section of Psalms in the Bible called the Psalms of Ascent. It's Psalms 120 to Psalm 134. It's a special category of psalms that carries this title. And as Bible scholars try to understand what's unique about this section of psalms, what the general consensus is, is these are songs that the people of God would sing as they were on their way up to Jerusalem, hence the word ascent. They're ascending up the hill to the temple that sits in Jerusalem. And they would sing these songs on the way to worship. And so why we've entitled this series Worship on the Way because you got to notice this. These aren't songs they sang in the temple. These are songs they sang outside of the temple while they were on their way. So less than 1% of our lives is spent here in worship. So if us in worship here, this corporate experience of worship, if that's the only time we're worshiping in a given week, that's less than 1%, all of us would agree that's probably not what God wants. And so we need to understand that worship is this gratitude, this response of gratitude for what he's given us. So it doesn't just have to be when we've gathered and singing. We can even worship on the way. And so that's why we've entitled it this. We are on the way, and we are worshiping on the way. Now, these psalms were also sung during the time in which the children of Israel were in exile. So remember the Babylonians and different ones, they came in and they scooped up the children of God and they took them away to live in Babylon. And so while they lived in Babylon, we believe they sang these songs. They couldn't climb that hill to Jerusalem and to be in the temple to worship. They wanted to be there, but they were stuck in exile here. And they would sing these songs to remind them of where they want to be. So they're stuck where they don't want to be and there's some place they know they want to be with God in his house with his people. And they would sing these songs. And I think that's true for us in our lives. Maybe you're stuck in a cubicle and it feels like exile. Or maybe you're stuck with a crying baby at 2 a.m. Or maybe you're stuck just in a web of interpersonal relationships that are really complex and difficult. And you wish you could be anywhere than the web of conflict that you're wrapped up in. And you think, oh, I would love to worship outside of church on Sunday, but I just don't see how I can. 
And so maybe these Psalms of Ascent can be a gift to you. We can learn how to worship even out there in the world as we long to be somewhere we can't be now. We can still be worshiping here as we are. And as we approach this series, we should also highlight that Jesus is the way. So we're going to worship on the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. And so worship is this abiding with Jesus. Specifically this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 120, the first of the worship uh, on the way, the first of the Psalms of Ascent, and we're calling this one Worship During Distress. So I'll read the passage for us this morning. It's in your Bible. It's on our screens. Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So as we approach this psalm of ascent, we're asking ourselves the question, how do we worship during distress? We're not at church. We're out there on the way just living our lives, and there is distress. Specifically, according to this psalm, the distress is liars, deceitful people. How do I worship during distress, specifically when I'm surrounded by deceit? I've said this before, so I apologize for repeating myself, but I think that we are living in unprecedented times, and I think there are the highest levels of deceit ever known in the history of the world is the time that we're living in now. We are in a crisis of truth. Now, some of this psalm is timeless. Deceit is timeless. We've been lying to one another for, for generations, right? It's just different now. If you rewound the clock 200 years, you'd have the snake oil salesman pulling his horse and buggy from town to town, deceiving people. You'd have rumors spreading from log cabin to log cabin. You'd have just untruths spreading even back then, right? Lies about African-Americans, lies about Chinese-Americans, lies about Native Americans, right? All infused into our past. So some of these things are timeless. However, it used to be that, that these uh, untruths spread at the speed of a horse. The lie could spread about as fast as a horse could run. But now the deceit can spread within just a millisecond, can it? It can just spread much faster than a horse can travel. It used to be that the way that it would spread is the reporter would sit down and he would write a, an article and it would spread out through the circulation of the newspaper. But now we all have a platform at our fingertips and we're all reporters and we can all write and we can all spread deceit much faster than a horse can travel, so exponentially greater than any time in the history of the world, we are living in just a society full of deceit. And we don't know what to do. We have this crisis of truth. What do we do? Well, we cry out to the Lord in our distress. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Jesus refers to Satan as the father of lies. And Satan's very happy with what's happening in society around the world. And so we cry out to God, deliver us. Now, as we pursue deliverance, I think within Christianity, there's a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum... We, we have these people that disagree with us on our truth claims, right? I claim this to be truth, you claim that to be truth. And on this end, we could call it compromise. And so what we do is we compromise the truth. So it says that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And we live in the society and there's all this pressure. And so we quickly go to, oh, well, he is a way among many ways. And he is a truth, but it doesn't have to be the truth. And he was a life that lived in a good life that we should pay attention to. See, this end of the spectrum is this, this area of compromise. And, and well-intentioned Christians, with all the pressure around them, they can slip down to this end of the spectrum. But other well-intentioned Christians can slip to this end of the spectrum, and they can have this hostility in them. This end of the spectrum is hostility. It's this anger we get when we hear deceit or a lie or something that's not true. And we have this hostility towards people. And sometimes in that end of the spectrum, we can forget really important Bible verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So when you're going into the grocery store, let's say, and somebody bumps into you, and that makes you mad, and you turn and you see that the person is blind, does that make you more angry, or does that provoke some compassion and some patience? So as we're reminded as a church family that the people around us are blind and they've been blinded by Satan, does that provoke compassion and patience in you? Because it should. He's blinded their eyes. And so we should lovingly be like Jesus. When Jesus looked at the crowds, it says in Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. People are blind. I was blind. We need compassion and patience, not hostility. So we need to pray for deliverance from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue, deliverance from compromise, deliverance from hostility. We even probably need to pray for some deliverance from ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves as well. So far, all we've done is highlight how all around us there's deceit. And that's, that's like a really easy thing to preach. It's a really easy thing for you to receive because we're all pointing fingers at a society that's full of deceit, which is true. But there's also some deceit in us. So they say that anxiety is often the fruit of telling ourselves untruths. We deceive ourselves. I read this this week from John Acuff. He wrote, one of the greatest mistakes you can make is assuming that all your thoughts are true. One of the greatest mistakes you can make is assuming that all of your thoughts are true. We deceive ourselves. I'll never be good enough. Everyone has that but me. Everyone has a newer phone than me. Everyone has a newer car than me. Everyone has a bigger house than me. I'll always feel this way. Things will never change. I'm the worst of this entire group. I'm the worst. I'm the only one who feels this way. No one likes me. No one loves me. No one knows me. You see how this happens? You see, we can deceive ourselves. And so we do live in a society that we need to be delivered from. And we live in a, this, this flesh that we need to be delivered from as well, from our own deceit. And so we cry out, deliver me, O God. Deliver me. As we work our way through the psalm, we're going to pause at various points and pray together. We have these prayer prompts for us to guide us in this moment of silent prayer, which, you know, are there. <laughs> and I'm going to read it for you, and you're going to listen. Thank you. This is what we're going to do in just a moment of silence. 
Thank you that you are a God who answers. Let's give some thanks to God. I confess my distress over the deception in the world, especially, and then fill in the blank. Whatever's on your heart, I confess, God, that I have distress over the deception in the world, especially whatever it is, the media, the nation, your own family, your situation, and then we pray, God, give me peace to trust in you. So I'm going to give you a moment to to talk to God, to bring to him what you are distressed about, and talk to him. We thank you, God, that you are a God who answers. And so we confess our distress, Heavenly Father. There's deception in our media. There's deception in our relationships, Lord. There's even deception in our own hearts. We confess it. We ask that you would give us grace to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So how do we worship during distress? Well, step one, we have done. We have taken our distress to God. Step two is highlighted in the next verses. We're going to look to God for justice. So he writes, What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Oh, I know. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. That's what the psalmist is saying. He's using poetic language, but he's saying, What can we do to this deceitful tongue? Oh, I know what we can do to this deceitful tongue. I hope and I pray that arrows will shoot to that deceitful heart. Not just arrows, though, but arrows that are flaming hot coals. So the psalmist is crying out for justice and for judgment. And the psalmist is modeling for us a good way to pray. It's appropriate for when we see a lie, it is the righteousness of God that calls out in our hearts to say, like, that's a lie, and that lie should be stopped. And that lie should be judged. Now, depending on the degree of it, we all look the other way on little white lies. But depending on the degree, we would all cry out for justice. Just think of it involves deceit as it relates to the safety or the protection of a child. We'd say, if you're lying, if you're living out that deceit, then we're all going to want justice for you. And so our hearts, with the righteousness of God, cry out when we see deceit, when we see lying happening, we want the judgment of God. And that's a good thing. That's his righteousness. But notice what it says. It doesn't say, the psalmist doesn't say, I will shoot the arrows. Doesn't say that. He, see, he says, what can, we, what can be done? What shall be given to you? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. You see, the author of the psalm has Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35 at his disposal. He has it in his scroll. It exists in the temple. And he knows what it says in Deuteronomy 32, 35. God speaking, he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So God is the one shooting the arrows, not you and not me. God is, will have vengeance. He will repay. It's so tempting to go out into this world that's just, just smothered in deceit and say, my mission this week is to expose every lie. And maybe that needs to be done. Maybe that's a helpful strategy. Maybe that requires a lot of wisdom and discernment. But what we are not called to do is repay evil with evil. We are to repay evil with good. That's what Jesus told us to do. And like I said a minute ago, we have to be careful about the judgment we deserve because we deserve judgment as well. It's easy to say like, yes, God should shoot an arrow into the hearts of those who lie then you and I have to stop and and look really introspectively at at last week. Was I 100% honest? 
Was I 100% truthful? So you think back through the week, and you think through your texts and your emails and your phone calls. You sure there wasn't anything you could have actually communicated in a better way? You know, sometimes we say things like, um, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. But, but we did hear. Oh, I forgot. Mm, but we didn't forget, did we? You know, we have a way of communicating something in such a way that is, that is quite misleading. You see, the judgment we want for all of those who use deceit is the same judgment, to be fair, that we have to receive ourselves. Do I want the same justice for myself that I want for them? And so as we consider life that way, we're going to go to God in prayer. And our prayer prompts are, God, I trust that you are truth and you will judge those who deceive. God, I confess that I have used my tongue in deceitful ways. Please forgive me and have mercy on me. Let's take a moment of silent prayer and talk to God this way. Amen. So how do we worship during distress? We take that distress to God, and then we trust in him that he's going to judge righteously, and then we long for home. So that's what the psalmist does. He says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. So as you read through that, and you can try and figure out, okay, well, where is Meshech and where is Kedar? That's a longer answer. All we really need to know is it's not home. It's not in the promised land. It's not where the people of God would define as home. So he's saying, I am sojourning. I am a foreigner in a foreign land. As I am in this foreign land, I look around me and everybody hates peace. And I am so tired of living amongst people who hate peace. Do you ever feel that way? I feel that way sometimes. It's one of the reasons I turned off cable news is because I became convinced personally that the people that are running that program hate peace. Because I'm pretty convinced that what sells and gets viewers and gets listeners is distress and and escalating of conflict. And what doesn't really get viewers and what doesn't really get listeners is if we love peace and we try to bring people peace. And so I can feel what the psalmist is writing. I'm like, yes, yes. So what do we do? What do we do? We long for home. We long for home. And it's 4th of July weekend. Let me just make one point of clarification. When I say we long for home, I don't mean we long for some nostalgic point in our past. We don't long for America in the 1950s. That's not home. Home is a point in the future on the horizon when Jesus will redeem all things and restore all things and he will reign as a king of heaven over heaven and earth. And you and I, we are fundamentally citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as we gather here, it's this family reunion once a week, and we have all ages here, all through the room, and we're reminded as we come together, this is a bit of a taste of home. There's unity, here's love, and here is peace. 
And I long for that to be fully realized one day on the horizon when the Lord returns and I am living with that expectation and anticipation of that day that is yet to come. And as I live here in this world, I feel like I'm sojourning in Meshech. I feel like I'm just around, I'm in a country, I'm surrounded by people that, that don't make me feel like heaven. I was, one of the books that I use as a resource for this sermon in this series is a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's written by a man named Eugene Peterson. It's a wonderful book. I commend it to all of you if you want to read something in correlation to the sermon series, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. When he writes about Psalm 120, he describes us as people who are living in between. We are people who live in between. And he uses this beautiful uh, illustration. He says, we're like a trapeze artist where, you know, remember that back in the circus days where they would be swinging back and forth and then you'd release from one trapeze artist and you're floating in the air until your hands are locked in with the other trapeze artist. And Eugene Peterson says, and that's it. That's us. We are living in the in-between. Not yet where we want to be, Feels a bit risky, feels a bit scary, and here's the space we've been called to. When I read that illustration, it made me think of my kids in the backyard jumping off of their swings. And so a couple of times in, in recent years, I've said, let me show you how to jump off of a swing, kids. <laughs> and then I was reminded of what it's like to live in the in-between. And the older you get, the scarier it gets. And the older you get, the more painful it is as you land. And so I think we've got an illustration working here. Um, and so it's painful, and it's risky, and it's scary, and it's uncomfortable to be in between. But what Eugene Peterson is teasing out is this. It's also kind of good. It's kind of like a life that's full of anticipation and expectation for something good that is yet to come. Let me just tell you, I live with a five-year-old whose birthday is tomorrow. Okay, There is something special about living this life with a sense of anticipation. And so it can be difficult to be a sojourner and a foreigner our whole lives. But there is something beautiful about living a life that is just full of anticipation for this kingdom of heaven to become fully realized for all of us. So we're going to take a moment and pray this prayer. God, I am weary from living in this fallen, broken world. Fill my heart with anticipation for your restoration. Fill me with hope and joy. Let's take a moment and pray that. Amen. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. What a great sentence that is. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Like, we can each use that sentence this week, I'm sure. Like, we're in a situation, and that's how we feel, just like the psalmist, because we are out there. We are not where we want to be. We are living in the midst of a fallen and broken world, and it's, I, it resonates with my heart. I am for peace, but I feel like every time I open my mouth, they want to fight. We ask ourselves the question, though, we don't have the time to be as introspective as we should be here, but are you for peace? Am I for peace or am I for proving that I'm right? Because they're not the same thing. This word 
peace in the Hebrew language, you've heard it talked about perhaps in church before, is the word shalom. And the word shalom is this complex, beautiful word that means complete, soundness, welfare, safety, health, prosperity, tranquility, contentment, rest. All of this is wrapped up in this beautiful word. What's not present in there is proving to other people that you are right. So am I for peace? Or or am I oftentimes for proving others that I'm right and they're wrong? Now remember what we said earlier. We can be people who are uncompromising in the truth. And yet not motivated by hostility, but motivated by compassion and patience and peace. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in John 16, He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. But listen to his other words. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, listen, you have peace in me. But listen, you need to expect that when you speak and you are for peace, that there's going to be war. That should be the expectation, not the surprise. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 25. These are strange words. If when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's a strange sentence. If you do good and suffer and endure, that's a gracious gift from God. What? He says, this is what you've been called to because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So here's what we've been called to, to follow Jesus. What did he do? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the judge who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So what are you for? If you're for peace, then you're with Jesus. He was for peace and he was kind and compassionate. And he asked a lot of questions. And he didn't force everybody to agree with him. And he fundamentally demonstrated his commitment to peace through self-sacrifice. Listen, as we leave here today, the only person you can control is yourself. In this world, you will have trouble. You will speak for peace this week, and they will respond with war. You can go through this life focused on trying to get everyone to change around you. But if that's how you focus your life this week, then you will get war. But if you can focus this life on God, and as you abide in Christ, you will experience so much of his compassion and patience and peace that you will begin to overflow with compassion and patience and peace. And you will share that with others. If you want peace, then be with Jesus. Our prayer prompt to close out our time is this. God, so often I ask you to change others rather than asking you to change me. Help me to experience your peace so I can share it with others. Let's take a moment of silent prayer and talk to God this way. Amen. So, how do we worship during distress? We take our concerns to God. We trust that he's the judge, 
We long for home, and we are for peace. We're going to close our service with communion. And I think the practice of communion captures some of these things. Whatever you're concerned about today, we're going to give you a moment of silence before you partake of the bread and the cup so that you can take your heart to God, that you can trust in his justice, so you can long for his peace. But we should all ask ourselves the question in this moment of silence as we look introvertly into ourselves, am I at peace? Because Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So if you feel like you don't have peace with God, you hold this in your hands before it touches your lips, we are told that we can have peace with God if we are justified by faith. And so we can admit our sin and we can believe that Jesus died on that cross, forgiving us of our sins, rose from the dead, and we can commit ourselves to his way. And then we can have peace with God before we partake of this bread and drink of this cup. Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus reconciled all things to himself by making peace through his blood which was shed on the cross. Let's take a moment to look inwardly to confess our faith to Christ before we partake of the bread and the cup. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. I hope you come back next week. We're going to finish our service with a picnic at North Park, so I hope you can come to that. As we go out here onto the way, I hope you can continue to worship our benediction as we go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.